0: Good morning. So we're continuing on in uh, our study of the rise of Christianity. Uh, We are looking now much more intentionally at the English uh, stream of the church. Obviously, we know that uh, there is a history uh, in Europe, too, uh, during some of the time period we're going to be looking at. But we're kind of focusing much more on what's coming in our direction towards America not that we're the center of the earth, <laughs> but it's where we live. And so it's trying to make this as relevant as possible. And so, along the way we've been very careful to track with the conversations in Europe. And as I say, we're gonna be shifting now. We've, we've been on the European continent for the most part. We did consider um, John Wycliffe and the Lollards and their suffering for translating the scriptures. And uh, now we're going to be thinking through the English Reformation. The English Reformation was a much slower, I would say delayed, uh, and largely due to the fact that the, the Bible was prohibited from being translated into English. That really delayed the English Reformation by likely a hundred years. That's a significant, like a full Reformation. By the by, the king. And uh, so, as I said last uh, a few weeks ago, we discussed the John Wycliffe and the and the Lollards. The Lollards were those who followed him as disciples, and they went and they taught children to to recite the Lord's prayer in English. Um, to understand the Ten Commandments, and also to uh, learn the Apostles' Creed. And th- those things were prohibited. And in 1519, seven lawlards were burned uh, for teaching children uh, these things that we take for granted. And uh, this is kind of the environment in which Tyndale was born into. He is a, a significant reformer that we're going to be uh, looking at. Oh, There we go. And we're going to see the beginnings of the English Reformation in the life of William Tyndale. He was uh, born in 1494 in Gloucestershire. Uh, In 1506 to 1516, he studied at Oxford. So we don't have a lot. That's a big jump, okay? He was born and then he went to school. So we don't have a lot of info about his early childhood. Um, But as a student at, at Oxford, he... He did encounter the ideas of Wycliffe, and he would have become familiar with the the argument as to whether or not we should have the Bible in English translation. And during that time, it's told that uh, he began to spar with other scholars about the need to get the language of the people, uh, get it out to the language of the people. And uh, he said this that got him into some trouble. He said, I he was talking about how God's law is better than the Pope's law, just by rank and priority. And so as the argument went on, he said, in an inflammatory way, he said, I defy the Pope in all his laws. If God spare my life for many years, I will cause a boy that driveth the plow to know more Scripture than he does. And so he was pretty... Pretty ag- aggressive in his tone, and that got him into trouble. But he was a brilliant man. He learned eight languages: uh, Greek, Hebrew, but also continental languages. He was very familiar with the European languages. And uh, with the anti-Lollard uh, disposition in England towards translation, he fled to Germany because he he realized, you know what, this is such a stifling environment. I have to get out of. England to be at a place where I can do the work that I believe God's calling me to do. And uh, through his uh, his study and 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 he fled to Germany. He translated the New Testament in 1524, and he would never ever return to England uh, again. And uh, he, in his translation, he fled to Germany. He lived in Worms. That's where Luther. Uh, went to the Diet of Worms, so he, that was a kind of a safe place for him. The Lutheran Church had, establ- had become well-established, and so there was protection there for him. And, um, but he couldn't stay in Worms forever. He, he, he was under the good graces of hosts and hospitality. He relocated eventually to Brussels. And uh, while he was there, someone from England came... Uh, someone who was acquainted with him from his time in Oxford came. Uh, his name was uh, Henry Phillips. Henry Phillips deceived Tyndale. Tyndale was a wanted man, and uh, in in it had become circulated that he might potentially be in Brussels, and uh, <laughs> a warrant went out for his arrest, and. Uh, a man, this man by the name of Henry Phillips, who knew had known him in Oxford, found a way to deceive Tyndale into thinking that he could be a trusted friend and even would take him out to eat and, you know, kind of do favors for him and that type of thing and kind of earned his trust. And in the process, he was like a Judas and summoned the king's guards and brought him under arrest. And he went into uh, prison uh, at uh, Villevoorde Castle in Belgium for for a long time for and while he was there he he wrote "Faith alone justified before before God." It was an argumentation uh, for the superiority of yes the scriptures, but also that we don't need the works of the system of the church to to be have our justification. Very important work that he wrote. Uh, Tyndale's life is very remarkable in many ways because he was a man who, who on his own sense, that he needed to not just simply exist in the church, exist in England, he made very courageous steps in order to advance the truths of the gospel to make it available to people. He didn't just simply let his circumstances dictate terms. He, he actively moved out of England for the purpose of taking the word of God back to England. And uh, very significant. And uh, we would not likely have an English Reformation without Tyndale because copies of his New Testament found their way back into England. And uh, people began to read them under duress of also receiving punishment for reading the scriptures. Um, But in the 1520s, the 1530s, Uh, some political events in England began to uh, open a door for potential reform within the English Church. At that time, it was exclusively Catholic. And uh, some of you might remember this guy in this picture. Henry VIII. He had a great matter uh, that was uh, pressing upon him. He needed an heir uh, in order to pass the crown to the next generations. And uh, the political dynamic in England at the time, avoidance of civil war was also a motive. Uh, if he doesn't have an heir, then there comes a squabble as to who will be the heir. And so everyone in England was invested in the king's great matter as to how can we uh, preserve the peace of the country. And uh, it's uh, it's remarkable. Uh, just you may me know the story of King Henry the Eighth. He married. Uh, uh, Catherine of Aragon, um, and unfortunately, when he married Catherine, um, he married someone who was related to him uh, through his brother's, it was his brother's former wife, and uh, he he did this, and then when only a child, a, a female child was born, uh, there was a uh, a question as to, okay, now what do I do? <laughs> Uh, and he began to read. He had one of his uh, advisors said, You know, in Leviticus 20, verse 24, it says, If a man takes his brother's wife, it's an impurity. He's uncovered his, neighbor, his brother's nakedness, and they shall be childless. And he started to think to himself, Okay, I've done what the scriptures told me I shouldn't do, and I'm, maybe I'm getting this childlessness now because I'm in defiance of God's word. And so. Um, as uh, his understanding of scriptures uh, began to, to progress, advisors around him made appeal to Pope Julius in Rome to see if it be possible that that first marriage could be annulled. And uh, unfortunately, Wolseley was not uh, uh, successful to appeal to the Pope, and uh, the Pope would not permit it. I can't get into all the reasons why that was the case. Again, everything's politics, <laughs> right? And... Uh, And so he began to kind of find advisors who would respond to his wishes. And he decided to open a special parliamentary session called the Reformation Parliament. And uh, the king advised the parliament to try to work out laws that would make him to be the supreme authority of the church uh, for purposes for which he was was headed into, and um, during that time period fifteen thirty two fifteen thirty three uh, Henry quietly married uh, Anne of Boleyn. He had separated from Catherine, and he married Anne of Boleyn. And uh, within six months, and after the, the the Act of Supremacy went into effect, uh, the king the king's uh, first Bishop Thomas Cramer annulled the marriage of the first marriage and uh, permitted him officially to to take on. Now, we don't have time to go through all Henry's wives. We're not going to do that. But those were the kind of the key things that opened the door. And Thomas Cramer, at this time, was a Catholic. But when he went to Europe, he began to encounter the teachings of Lutherans. And he began to question some of the the tenets that he had received. And so when he came back to answer the call to set up this new church government in England, he brought with him the ideas of the Reformation. And uh, there was a need to um, establish uh, norms for this new church. And a book was put together called the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer was a, a way of doing liturgy for the English-speaking world. And um, it began to partially reform the church. It still had a lot of Catholic forms in it. Um, but it had started to introduce some, some new elements. For example, one significant change that you'll recognize is that no longer was the communion called coming to the altar, like a place of sacrifice the Book of Common Prayer changed the wording to, this is the Lord's table. So there's there's significance in elements like that. Um, In time, a lot lot later in the historical development of the church in England, uh, a set of articles of doctrine were established called the 42 Articles, and then they got reduced down in 1563 to the 39 Articles, and these were designed to create um, continuity of doctrinal instruction, but by the time it got to the 39 articles, it was thoroughly a Reformed type of uh, teaching, justification by faith, um, while still obviously using a lot of the familiar the smells and the bells kind of idea, you know, the high Anglican liturgy. Um, those elements were, the, the smells and the bells were removed of their mystic quality, in other words. People still use them for ritual purposes, but they did not have the meritorious elements attached to them. Uh, It was uh, justification by faith was the communication from the pulpits at that time. And so that that was a slow progress. Obviously, there's so much history here that I can't go through for you all. and You wouldn't want me to anyway. Um, But... uh, out, out of out of his reform and effort desire to have an heir, uh, there were back and forth uh, attempts to capture the power uh, between different kings who subsequently came after Henry. Uh, Henry the was followed by Edward the sixth and and then he was a young prince, but he died early he couldn't live long enough to help help the the new reform movement. Well, they had to have an heir, and Mary the I comes in from Scotland, and she's thoroughly Catholic. And so what you have is you have this back-and-forth pressure. Are we, are we as English people going to be reformed, or are we going to be Catholic? And so you know how it is. Every administration comes in, whiplash, right? And that's what happened subsequently, all the way through James I, and, James, and Charles I, after Charles I, well, he was beheaded, and then America, America Britain went through civil wars uh, for a number of years, uh, and without a king, the interregnum period occurred, and you had uh, protectorates for the commonwealth, and then a restoration of Charles II as well. But Charles II came in with the uh, promise that he would bring uh, something for Protestants. But when he came in, he came in and said, no, we're going to have an act of uniformity here, and everyone, everyone has to do exactly what we tell them to do. You can't have a varied opinion on any matter. You can't preach anything unless it conforms to the Church of England. So while this back and forth is going on, there's a lot of people who are starting to read the Bible for themselves. And so you've got groups of people starting to sprout up like the Baptists, and you've got Congregationalists, you've got Presbyterians, and you've got people starting to to, to interpret the Scriptures. And in 1662, there was a great ejection of ministers from their pulpits because they couldn't... They couldn't affirm the teachings of the Catholic, of the, the Church of England, and there was a lot. John Bunyan was one of the, the uh, ministers who was ejected from his pulpit. He went to prison because he wouldn't he wouldn't preach under the license of the Church of England, and uh, quite others, uh, many others. Uh, I think it's estimated that two thousand pulpits were were emptied out during that time period. Um, through the through those transitions and reforms. Uh, Uh, The Puritans um, were the political class of of reformers. They were involved in the church, but they were also involved in the political uh, organ of the the parliament. They tried to establish a Presbyterian form of government for the Church of England. Um, They weren't ultimately successful um, but they worked very hard to try to get the church to become less Catholic and much more biblically based, using the biblical categories for church organization. And they they were, um, they were at times called uh, Puritans, basically by those who were opposed to their efforts, and it was a pejorative term. Um, it was, oh, you're just a, you're kind of a, you've heard the, t- you're kind of like a prude, you're kind of a, you're a Puritan, um, it's, it's that they had a very strict interpretation and they wouldn't allow for anything other than what the Scriptures commanded. They wouldn't go beyond it. So the Westminster Assembly, uh, 1643 to 1652, was probably one of the most significant acts uh, of, of that time period. Um, the Church of England came together... And, and tried to assemble all the, as many doctors of theology as they could to come together and try to hammer out what, what the Church of England ought to be teaching. This was an attempt, a reform movement that attempt to remove the 39 Articles and replace it with a standard, a standard that would be Presbyterian in orientation. And uh, this assembly of ministers created a Confession of Faith Uh, called the Westminster Confession now today, has two catechisms attached to it, a larger and a shorter. Sometimes children will memorize the question and answers from the shorter catechism. Um, Who made me? God made me. What else did God make? God made me and all things. That's the shorter catechism. But that has its roots in the Westminster Assembly. And uh, you might know the famous, uh, what is the chief end of man? to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? That's the first question in the catechism. And so that's where that comes from. Um, They also created a handbook for worship and a form for Presbyterian church governance. Um, They ultimately were unsuccessful. This was during the interregnum reign time period. The Puritans were trying to seize power. But by 1662, they had failed, and it reverted back to the 39 Articles of the, uh, the the church, but I just want to highlight. I think what's really important for us as we move closer to to our situation. The rise of denominationalism, uh, denominational theory laid was laid by the Reformation, and they had planted the seeds um, that they insisted that the true church can never truly be identified in any exclusive sense with a particular institution. Zwingli was uh, was very sensitive, and also John Haas, to the idea of the universal church. Um, you can do your best to try to articulate what the true church ought to be like, but as long as there's humans involved, it's going to fail to come up with a perfect uh, method of of organizing and working together. And uh, during that time period of the Westminster Confession and 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 all those folks together, there were other voices, there were minority voices that were a part of this um, called the Congregationalists. They were Independents. The majority of the assembly were Presbyterian in orientation, but there was this minority group called the Independents, and they believed that it was important to set up church governance along congregational Uh, principles. They were were keenly aware of the problem of handing power exclusively to an episcopate, of having a bishop with all this power. And as they interpreted scripture, they recognized that the power truly is with the people. And uh, that was an important uh, part of that process and and debate on on these topics. Um, The Congregationalists, uh, maybe you know the name John Owen, John Owen was a Congregationalist, and he was a, He drafted a similar Confession of Faith to the Westminster, but it was called the Savoy Declaration. It, 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 it copied a lot of the main tenets of the Westminster Confession, but on the church governance side, it identified not a Presbytery as the authority, but the congregation as the authority. And... Um, There were other dissenters during that time period called the Baptists. Uh, There were general Baptists and there were particular Baptists. Uh, But the particular Baptists um, revised the Westminster Standard and uh, they developed what's called the London uh, Baptist Confession, 1689. And that that was their statement of of church governance and doctrine. Um, But those who were dissenting... uh, who were dissenting during this time period, laid out principles uh, that were very significant. I'm just going to read them here. I've got them short form on your, on your handout, but um, they really understood some fundamental truths to, to how churches organize themselves organically. First, they recognized that man's inability to always see the truth clearly. There's going to be differences of opinion. <laughs> Uh, about how outward form of church should be organized. That's just inevitable. That's a fundamental truth that everyone just has to come to terms with. Um, If there's not going to be a defined unifier like a pope, you're going to have, this is going to happen. Um, And the difference is, though, that they don't have to involve, some of these differences do not involve fundamentals of faith, They and themselves are not matters of indifference. They're still important. Do you have a thought? Yes. Correct. And how a church is structured. Church polity. Yeah, good question. So church polity, how how are we going to organize ourselves? And those were the chief questions that were being discussed at that time. And they emphasize the fact that these don't involve fundamentals of the faith. We, we, can have a, we can agree on the universals, and we can be a part of the universal church, but yet have differences in how we organize ourselves. Um, they developed a, th- a third principle here that no church has a final and full grasp of divine truth, and the true church of Christ can never be fully represented by any single Ecclesiastical structure, but they also were very careful, and they wanted to make sure that people fully understood that the mere fact of separation does not itself constitute a schism, a schism or a schism. I don't know what, I don't know which way you say it. I've heard it both ways, a schedule or a schedule, right? But the 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 division does is over doctrine. That, that, that's, that can be real, like, like the gospel. Like justification by faith alone is something that must, you must divide from Catholics on this. Now, we as Protestants might have different viewpoints on how to organize ourselves, but we're still united on what matters. The, the supremacy of Scripture. We might have disagreements on how to interpret it, but we're still going to be having unity on the truth. The Scripture is our final authority, not the Pope. And so uh, these principles were starting to be articulated during this uh, time period. And uh, it doesn't mean that people weren't unconcerned about doctrinal differences like baptism. So baptism, we would say, is a really important doctrine. But that doesn't mean that a Presbyterian doesn't have a claim to the true gospel. Right? A Presbyterian could have claim to the true gospel, but we might have disagreement on when baptism occurs in the sequence of of how we live out our faith together. Does that make sense? You had another question, Dave? Yeah. Denominational groups. Yes. Doing what? Coming up with these four principles? Who came up with the four principles? These, so church historians are looking at some of the writings of people during that time period, and they're distilling them down into, these are the emphases that you're seeing during that time period. Correct. It was a practice. Correct. But it was a painful, it was a painful pattern of practice because there were, if you're part of the Church of England, you might have more rights than a dissenter. So you might be have the freedom to preach in a pulpit, whereas a dissenting voice may not. And so he has to go underground. But they're starting to recognize that this, this kind of authoritarian approach can't possibly work in a Protestant world. It's going to have to have some freedoms here for everyone. Yes, they're looking for the denomination, common denominator. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but as I said, it's not that things are indifferent. Uh, we, we, we're concerned about d- a practice of the church. Um, so the Church of England uh, retained a favored position um, in 1689... There was an act of toleration granted when the realization that we can't possibly manage our civic life by demanding everyone be conforming to the Church of England. It's not possible to happen. So the act of toleration was granted when when, uh, William and Mary ascended the throne. And uh, there was a uh, universal recognition that there was rights to worship underneath the Presbyterian banner or a Congregationalist banner, Baptist banner or a Quaker banner, um, there was freedom. And uh, so 1689, some of that started to travel with immigrants to, to America, right? And uh, it became in some ways God's answer to multiplying the faith in new worlds. Kind of this, this, this need for religious toleration seemed to make sense as we're going into new parts of the world. We can't, we can't manage everything out there, let alone here in England. Um, so, we're going to transition to denominations in, in America, and I'm just going to, I'm definitely going to be skipping over major history here to make some points about kind of just generic, like general. So, you have new people coming in from, Ameri- from Britain, and we have people coming from Europe to settle the colonies. Some of this denominational thinking came with them, and so you have people settling in regions that we have now, you know, it's good to know where things, why things are the way they are. So, Congregationalism was the standard practice for New England, for the most part, with the exception of uh, Rhode Island and the Baptists. Um, So, migration patterns led to, really, overall a diversity of denominations in America leading up to the Revolution, but the first thousands of immigrants to the Massachusetts Bay Colony came as Congregationalists. They didn't believe in the Presbyterian authoritarianism under the parliamentary structure. They they said each local congregation has to take accountability for themselves. But in the and as the as congregationalism de- developed in New England, as new congregations, new settlements started to to take place, they started to create networks and cons. They called them consociations in which ministers would get together and try to solve problems. Some local congregation might have a, a dispute with their minister, <laughs> so call in all the ministers together, and we'll kind of settle this, and then kind of give some instruction back to the congregation as a as a recommendation of what they ought to do. And uh, rather than thus saith the Lord, because we as elders said it, you have to do this, but they recognize there needed to be a balance there as well. Um, so again. The Congregationalists, they subscribed to the Savoy Declaration and they were baptizing their babies as well. The real clear difference between Presbyterians and Congregationalists was the form of government. Uh, That was the main difference between the two. And so, um, but the first wave, the very first waves in the 1620s, 1630s, they came and they were the majority class. Congregationalists were the majority class, and they were leaving the persecution that they, that they had experienced. But unfortunately, when they arrived, because they were the dominant voice, they then persecuted dissenters themselves. And the Baptists, people who felt, I should be baptizing upon profession of faith, felt the pressure. And someone like uh, Roger Williams left and settled in Rhode Island. And it became a haven for Quakers as well. Uh, in in New England and so that's what we have today um, I would just just uh, you might realize and maybe didn't realize but during that time period most Baptists were Calvinistic um, they had come out of the Westminster tradition that wasn't that doesn't mean that there weren't any that were not uh, there were general Baptists and particular Baptists and uh, they had different views on the scope of the atonement and I won't get into all of that right now, but just to, to, to bring that to our, our minds. Um, the Middle Colonies, just want to kind of move a little quicker now through these, these territories. Middle Colonies had a much more diverse denominational history. Uh, Pennsylvania uh, was, was a grant by uh, William, William Penn. He was a Quaker. He sought a refuge for his people and the New World, and it had a very eclectic representation uh, from the Presbyterians who were coming over, um, Lutherans, and then Reformed. Uh, Reformed, remember Zwingli, Swiss, Swiss Reformed, some German, but most Lutherans, Germans were Lutheran coming over, but a large, large settlements and also Anabaptists came over as well. So a lot of the Mennonites, the traditions that we see in Pennsylvania have their heritage there as well. Um, Some uh, Scottish and Irish Presbyterians settled in the middle colonies as well as in North Virginia as well in New Jersey. Um, Maryland has a unique distinction as being a refuge for Catholicism. And that's a a unique anomaly to mostly a Protestant eastern seaboard. But Maryland uh, was initially set up And they created an act of toleration for their own colony in 1649 to tolerate the Protestants (laughs) who were coming in. And so it's uh, kind of interesting how history flips itself sometimes. The southern colonies uh, to the south, uh, Virginia, North South Carolina, Georgia, were primary Protestant Anglican in their orientation. And uh, a lot of the large plantation owners were investors from England who had roots and networks in the Anglican church. And so um, that's... And the Methodist church, I didn't really talk about that at this point. We'll talk about it a little bit more next week. But the Methodist church um, was founded as a subset in the Anglican church. Um, There was a group at Oxford called the Holiness Club. Uh, That's literally what they called themselves. It was made up of Charles and John Wesley and also George Whitfield. And uh, they desired to have a new gospel emphasis within the church, a little renewal movement. And uh, they became well known for a, a method of doing discipleship, of creating small groups for accountability purposes where people would learn how to talk about the gospel and impact the, the spirit upon their hearts and lives, and so they were trying to get people not just to have an outward form of religion, but a vital and real form of religion, and uh, uh, with, uh, Wesley brothers uh, are, had traveled, Charles actually came to Georgia, Savannah, and spent some time there. Um, George Whitfield also came, but George Whitfield then had preaching a tenor at all the way up the seaboard, up into New England, uh, and his preaching c- created the the Great Awakening in the 1740s, and we'll get to that uh, next week. But that's kind of the, the 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 lay of the land here in in, in America. Um, you know, it, as each of these churches began to grow through the the Revolutionary Era and after the Revolutionary Era, era obviously. The West was a new territory, and you had people desiring to settle the West. And there were some churches that actually worked together to partner to make sure that new settlements had uh, pastors in their pulpits. Um, In the North, the Presbyterians and Congregationalists signed a plan of union in 1801 that they would um, raise and train ministers and send them west and it was like a non-competition agreement, so that when a new settlement was established and a congregation was starting to be formed, each congregation could on their own decide whether they would join with Presbyterians or Congregationalists, and a minister would be pl- would be supplied that could go in either direction. Very unique. Um, I will say that the Presbyterians won it, though, because in the end, after 50 years, the majority of of the northern churches that were established were Presbyterian rather than congregational. I don't know if you know, notice this, but most congregational churches, today they're called UCC churches. They're very liberal today, are mostly in New England. And uh, the Presbyterian uh, through the north, Ohio, and the, and, the, and the river valleys out that way are thoroughly Presbyterian. Um, that arrangement lasted to 1852 in the South, uh, during that time period, Baptists and Methodists began to come up with ways to bring ministers out West, and uh, they created a system called Circuit Riding. And uh, they decided, okay, we're, gonna have, we're not going to spend so much time training ministers in how to read the Greek and the Hebrew. We're going to give them a, a seminary light degree, and we're going to send them out West, and they can take the pulpit riding, they can ride a circuit. And they can spend their time traveling rather than studying, and then they can preach sermons to people to get them something. Uh, that worked out pretty well for, 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 but then gradually a lot of the Methodist churches decided, you know what, we want to have an educated ministry. We want people to be able to exposit the Word of God, and seminaries over time began to develop, and uh, you know, Francis Asbury was a significant uh, mover in that, that denomination, <clears throat> through the, through the 1800s, uh, several social, uh, and social, um, uh, reform movements took place. As you know, slavery was a big issue in our, our, our nation's history. Um, but through the 19th century, a lot of people began to really recognize that slavery was not appropriate and incongruent with the, the scriptures. The scriptures direct us towards freedom. And, uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of churches were very active. Many pulpits in north and south, north and south, did advocate, um, but it eventually rose and fell along political issues, political lines, and power. Um, I think of, I've been doing study um, in New England history, and uh, one of the men I, I study is, his name is uh, Jonathan Edwards, Jr. He advocated very, very strongly for abolition, and also Samuel Hopkins, And Samuel Hopkins partnered with Quakers in uh, Pennsylvania to try to increase awareness of the need uh, for the freedom of the slaves. Uh, Temperance was an issue after the Civil War. A lot of uh, Americans began to take that social activism towards uh, the relief of those who were enslaved to uh, human slavery, but also applied it to slavery to alcohol. And a lot of... uh, A lot of churches were very active in trying to alleviate the harms, uh, women and children who who were raised in abusive situations. And as cities began to form and develop, and and a lot of immigrants from Europe came into uh, America, they did not have the same sensitivities towards the uh, moderate use of alcohol, and, and, and there was a lot of problems, a lot of poverty in cities. And there was a re- general recognition of the need to bring temperance as a social good uh, for America, and that culminated with the 18th Amendment, and then it was repealed. Um, but churches were very active in, in, that, in that time period. Churches were also active as, as the Industrial Revolution started to develop. Uh, Sunday schools were established in the mid-1800s after the Civil War because there were a lot of children who went to the factories— And uh, as soon as they could tie their shoes, they were in the coal mines, you know, the coal breakers. Um, And um, work was primary, education was secondary. And a lot of churches established Sunday schools on Sunday afternoons in order to educate children how to read so they could then read the Bible itself. And that was the first uh, growth um, during the Civil War. There were a lot of young men who who came back from the war and they needed encouragement as well. Um, Young Men's Christian Association developed, YMCA, during that time period. Children who grew up learning how to read, working in the factories, weren't quite assimilating into denominational churches and the YMCA came in as a way to kind of help disciple young men to get them into churches to form leadership for another generation. And that's their history. Evangelist D.L. Moody began his speaking ministry with the YMCA in the Northern Baptist Convention. And uh, the Civil War obviously brought some other stresses upon denominations, and we had a, a breakdown, obviously over slavery between North and South. And the Southern Baptist Convention and the Northern Baptist Convention divided largely over these issues. The Presbyterian Church of America divided with the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America over largely the same issues. The Methodist Church went through the same fracture. You have the Free Methodists, we have the United Methodists. And that was largely uh, through this time period. So I've given you a a crash course through like 400 years of like, and if you held through that, you did really well. (laughs) There will not be a quiz next week. Um, But God does work through imperfect people to accomplish his plan. And uh, that is the essence of what I hope to communicate. I do believe that in denominational, denominational system, the true faith, once delivered for all time, is still available to be seen. There are other factors that have made some denominations weaker in this, in this, on this score. In, in a couple of weeks, we'll be thinking about theological liberalism. But for now, I, what's important to note that the first 400 years of the Protestant tradition first 300 years, excuse me, the church was preaching the same gospel no matter what denomination you were a part of. And so, all right, thank you for coming. Appreciate very much your time.